Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. The power of prediction, how analytics could be used to prevent disasters and more. Rebecca Costa. Today, we're producing as much data between the dawn of humankind in year 2003, every 48 hours. It was just too much to the point where people can't get to the information they need to get to. So most of it is wasted and not used in decision making. This is a major sea change in human existence and no one is talking about it. And we do need to have the conversation now. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? Richard, have you noticed how accurate hurricane predictions are getting? Yeah, uh, it used to be that, well, a hurricane will hit somewhere on the Florida coast or in the Gulf. But with all the hurricanes this year, many predictions came down to a matter of 20 or 30 miles in one direction or the other, much more accurate than before. Our guest today says modern science is helping us get better at all sorts of predictions, not just hurricanes, but even things like political upheavals and You know, whether a person has a chance of getting a particular type of cancer. Accurately predicting the future, an amazing power for humans to have. So then the question is, how do we use that power? Our guest is Rebecca Costa. She's the author of the new book, On the Verge, which is about the coming revolution in prediction science. A lot of people also know her from a radio show, The Costa Report. Rebecca Costa is joining us via Skype from Astoria, Oregon. Welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Your book covers a lot of big topics where predicting the future matters. But let's start with something in the news right now. You argue that some of the key pieces of data might have offered some warning signs about Stephen Paddock, the Las Vegas mass shooter. The fact is, is that there were many signs. Number one, he owned 42 firearms and he began accelerating the rate at which he was acquiring those. Every one of those firearms that were purchased were subject to an FBI background check. And so this data was already available. He also uh, purchased several pounds of explosives that were discovered in his car, along with 1,600 rounds of ammunition. Weeks prior to that shooting, Paddock attempted to buy purchase tracer ammunition. What is purchase tracer ammunition? Tracer ammunition is used to more accurately shoot at a target during the night. 
So there's really no reason anybody would need that much ammunition, that many firearms or tracer ammunition. There's also another problem. The other problem is that Paddock's father was diagnosed as a dangerous sociopath, a psychopath, and that is a heritable predisposition. We know this from studies of identical twins. More importantly, we know that he was prescribed and began taking diazepam in June of this year. But, but Rebecca, we know these things now. How could we have known them, or how could the FBI or government authorities have known them before the act? Well, this is the question. I think the public is frustrated by the fact that when we have a Sandy Hook, when we have a 9-11, the government works backwards and starts finding all of this data that was leading to criticality. And the real question is, right, if you have the data after the fact, then it means you had the data before the act was committed. And the real question is, do we want that monitor? Do we want to stop these events from occurring? I think we can't fool around with this anymore. We have to decide. You mentioned predictive analytics. And I'd love if you could give our listeners a maybe a less fraught <laughs> example of what are some areas in which we're able to collect data today, analyze it, and and do a better job of predicting the future in some other aspects of life? Well, I'll give you a great example. We are currently fighting a tremendous opioid addiction problem in the United States. And we know that the vast majority of people who become addicted on opioids get started on a doctor's legal prescription. But there's a company called Fuzzy Logics, and that company has developed a questionnaire and they can look at your medical records, and then they look at key behaviors. And by simply giving them that information, they can predict between 80 and 85% if a patient is predisposed to become addicted to opioids long before that first prescription is ever written. We don't have cures for addiction. We have ways to mitigate and, and even with those mitigations, the recidivism rate is very, very high. So, so trying to solve addiction on the back end after somebody is already addicted is a devil of a problem. Why not give doctors these predictive analytic tools on the front end? And if somebody is within 80 or 85 percent probable of becoming an addict, don't write that first prescription. Headed off on the front end. How would that work? If I were a patient, I would want to know if I'm predisposed to become an addict. I don't know that when I walk into a doctor's office, but I sure as heck would give him permission to find out. Your book, On the Verge, covers a whole range of areas where we are getting better at predicting the future. And this requires collecting data, having the algorithms to analyze the data, why is all this coming together right now? Because if you think about it, you know, in the early 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, we were collecting and manufacturing data as fast as we could. And we kind of overshot our goal. 
uh, today we're producing as much data between the dawn of humankind in year 2003 every 48 hours. That means every Friday night we go home from work and by Monday morning that entire uh, universe of information has been recreated. It was just too much to the point where people can't get to the information they need to get to in a timely way. So most of it is wasted and not used in decision making. And now we are developing phenomenal algorithms. And through the use of big data, we're able to connect billions of variables into algorithms that the likes of which humankind has never seen to the point where we can predict when you're falling. We can even predict when milk shortages will occur in advance. It's just simply not true. We don't know what the future is. We do know what the future is. The largest retailer in the United States, when they realized there was a connection between the weather warming up and a reduction in the amount of milk that, that cows could produce, they began tapping into NASA's meteorological database. And when they saw that the temperatures were going up, they locked in those milk prices. Think about the advantage, the business advantage that gave them. Many people are shocked when I tell them that we can predict that you're going to trip and take a fall, for example, within the next three weeks with 86% accuracy. Well, it turns out that your normal walking gait changes about five centimeters per second. And if that happens, you have about an 86% chance of falling. Now, imagine what that means to the elderly who often, because of a fall, lose their ability to live independently because they break a hip or a bone and suddenly they're in assisted living up to three to five years earlier than they would have needed to if we could have warned them. So how can that data be used to help them? Well, there are some retirement homes right now that have put sensors inside of pants. And when they measure a change of five centimeters per second, a change in their walking gait, they're immediately getting them on a treadmill and fixing that walking gait. They're pinging their phones to let them know that they're at risk of falling in the next three weeks. No, no, I mean, we could take those same predictive models and look at the Vegas shooter. I mean, who cares about after the fact? After shooting like Vegas, it's nice to know what, you know, there were all these signs. But the key is, couldn't we get those signs ahead of time? And couldn't we have done something? And then the real question is, what legal and ethical authority do we have? We don't want to turn into minority report where the police are descending on somebody because of, of, of thoughts. But on the other hand, it is equally wrong to ignore science. I, I'm glad you mentioned the, the minority report, because I was thinking about privacy concerns, that just because I'm exhibiting maybe an odd form of behavior or collecting something that might lead to someone in the FBI thinking I was doing something dangerous, do we want our purchasing decisions, for instance, to be tracked by federal officials? Well, it's already happening. I mean, you know, we worry about the government collecting metadata on our phones. That's nothing compared to what retail organizations are collecting about us every day. You know, they make the government data collection look prehistoric. 
But um, they can't for, arrest us for, for, for our bad buying decisions. Yes, and there's also the issue of free will. Let's say that everything Stephen Paddock did was leading up to 99.9% probability he was going to commit a mass shooting. Let's just say we collected all this data, and there is a lot of data that was indicating he was reaching a point of criticality, and it was 99.9%. What about at the last minute? He has all the ammo. He's broken out the window, and he changes his mind. You see, we're, we're, we're getting into a slippery slope here, and this is why I wrote the book. It's very important that we know that these models exist, and they're becoming so accurate that we are going to get into 99.9% territory. And once we do, what then? So you make the point that throughout human history, we've had to adapt to change. And now, we, with the ability to collect all this data, with the algorithms to predict the future, we have a different opportunity, and that is to adapt in advance. You call this pre-adaptation. Explain how that works. I think it's too slow to adapt after change has occurred. Change is accelerating so quickly that by the time you find out about something, it's too late. We need to look ahead and see what is coming toward us with nearly absolute certainty and begin adapting to that before the fact so that we can change the environment to which we're adapting rather than adapt to the environment that is changing. This is a major sea change in human existence. And no one is talking about it, and we do need to have the conversation now. Our guest is Rebecca Costa, author of On the Verge, which is a new book. And I'm Richard Davies. I'm Jim Meggs. And this is How Do We Fix It? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Rebecca, let's talk about how this could affect the world of politics. We have a climate-denying president, someone who has stated all kinds of stuff about our economy that experts, economists, and, and scientists say is not true. We, we can have all of this data and then do nothing with it, right? I mean, it seems like the way that we discuss politics and the amount of data that is out there are two completely different worlds. Well, you can pretty much group all of the things we do nothing about in government into long-term problems. You know, to this point in time, as you know, I'm an evolutionary biologist by training. 
human physiology is only designed to have any kind of response to a short-term danger. So if you see a snake in the road, right, your body immediately fills with chemicals to fight or flight, but you're going to take action on it. If you put a, a cuff uh, on somebody, put them in a lab and measure their heartbeat, and you start showing them the very real consequences of global warming, which eventually turns into global burning, which eventually turns into the annihilation of the species, their heartbeat doesn't even go up one beat an hour. We have no physiological impetus to take action the further a problem is out, of the further a danger or threat is. That's just where we happen to be in human physiology right now. So if you sit a 20-year-old down and you say, hey, you know what, you need to start saving for retirement because Social Security is going to run out, uh, you know, their eyes roll up in the back of their head and, you know, they, they tune out immediately. So where do we use predictive analytics realistically to, to make our lives better? Real, well, I gave you an example about falling. I gave you an example about opioid production. I mean, we've even gotten to a point where we can do genetic testing when you're born and we can tell you the types of cancers you're predisposed to. In my particular case, both of my parents passed from colon cancer. So I am in a very high percentile that nature wants to do me in on colon cancer. But I don't have to die from that. I can go and get a colonoscopy every year and they can harvest the polyps from it. And something I'm not going to live forever. Something's, you know, let's be clear, something else is going to do me in. But it won't be colon cancer because I am adapting to an event which has yet to occur. Some people are dubious about our ability to, you know, this idea that we're getting better at predicting the future. They say, look at Trump, look at Brexit. What are some reasons that people get the future wrong? Well, we didn't get the future wrong. The only people that weren't surprised that Trump became president was Trump's campaign. They had better models than Hillary Clinton's campaign, right? And, and the same mm -hmm. with Brexit. I, I mean, uh, the people who have the most accurate algorithms and tools do know what the future is going to hold. That's why they win. So, so, you know, and I do understand that people are dubious, you know, because for all of humankind, you know, the future was left to tarot cards and astrological readings and psychics. And it's very unusual for a scientist to come out and say, yes, but we now have predictive algorithms, the likes of which we have never had before. And we're zeroing in on 85, 90, 95 percent accuracy. This year's Nobel Economics Prize went to Richard Thaler, who is famous for his writings on behavioral economics, really challenging the idea that we make logical decisions. Um, sometimes when people have too many facts, they, they cling to established comfortable beliefs. So tell us what you mean by the concept of, of super memes. I, I think that you know, if you look at the history of humankind, you look at the Mayan Empire, the Roman Empire, what began to happen was there was a massive confusion between what was a fact, an empirically provable fact, and what was an unproven belief. And we see then that there comes a point in time also that public policy begins to drift and be formed 
on unproven beliefs rather than empirical facts. The Mayans are the best example of that. You know, they knew that they had a tenuous relationship with rainfall. If they didn't get enough rainfall, their civilization could not exist. So, you know, they were around for 3,000 years. The first 2,000 years, they were building, you know, large cistern, underground cisterns to uh, store water and, uh, and also uh, to refrigerate food. Uh, they were building dams and reservoirs, and they were massive. They were phenomenal uh, hydraulic engineers. They were also practicing fetishism or sacrifice at the same time. But we see that as the drought got worse and worse and worse, they abandoned building reservoirs and practicing water conservation and began escalating the sacrifice of at first captured slaves and then their own population until it, toward the very end and prior to the collapse of the Mayan civilization, they were murdering newborn infants uh, as sacrifice to the gods to have the rains return. We see this shift occur in every civilization where they move away from empirical fact toward unproven beliefs just prior to their collapse. Many people who read my first book, The Watchman's Rattle, which delineated this pattern of what the early signs are before civilizations collapse, you know, agree that we are headed down that road. But the thing that can stop us are these, uh, are these big data analytic computers that are taking millions of facts that the human brain cannot possibly absorb and analyze and stringing them together and spitting out an empirical-based decision or conclusion. We're still the people that get to pick, but the analysis is being done automatically. So you're saying that we're at a real turning point in history in terms of our ability to really analyze these masses of data and turn away from these dangerous paths of delusion that have doomed previous civilizations? Yes, we are the first civilization ever. This is the first time in humankind that we don't have to go down the path of earlier civilizations. I have great hope. You can hear I'm very optimistic. I have great hope for us because it's this computing technology that can keep us from even getting near the cliff. Do, do you think that, that letting people know that there's a great opportunity presented by all of this data is, is an important solution? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. If you look at big data analytics, let me just give you one quick example. When you're admitted to an ER, right, and they have no medical records on you. They don't know who you are. You better hope that the best physician in the hospital happens to be on call that night, right? And if they aren't, then your probability of surviving a critical ER call is not very good. But let's assume for a moment that they have a big data analytics system, like a Watson type of system. Then it doesn't matter who the intake person is, because as soon as you come in, they're going to enter into that Watson system every symptom and everything known about your condition. And Watson is going to be able to search in picoseconds the entire universe of human medical data and come back and say, it's 90% you've got a heart attack, it's 83% it's a stroke, it's 65% you've been poisoned by something. But here's the important thing that Watson can do. It can take that junior person and say, however, if the next piece of data on this patient was this, I could improve my diagnosis by 36%. Which, which 
basically says that your ability to live and survive a critical ER admission is now raised so much higher because of the fact that computers can diagnose you and can also make the least experienced person in the hospital better than the most experienced person. Rebecca Costa, thank you very much. Great, great, great conversation. Really appreciated the points you raised. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Boy, a lot to to chew on there. <laughs> it sure and, is. But I think what's fascinating about her take is that there's this myriad of possible solutions. The hard questions comes in, do we want to actually apply them? We get into these really tricky ethical issues about taking action before things have actually happened. And I think there's a, a huge challenge ahead of us as a society to work all this stuff out in so many ways i'm the sunny optimist and i always think that <laughs> wait isn't that my job a... <laughs> well i think we we agree on this that we're both fairly positive people and and launch this show because we believe that there are solutions out there to problems but this represents a very thorny issue especially when it comes to to our politics right now i'm reading a book by michael lewis called the undoing project yeah it's about the work of of, of the Israeli psychologist Tversky and Kahneman, and, and they really were the first people, even before uh, the economist Richard Thaler, who just won the Nobel Prize, raised this whole concept that we're not nearly as rational in our behavior as we like to think. Because I'm thinking about 2008. I mean, if people had acted rationally in the mortgage business, and the banking business before the 2008 financial crisis, uh, then there would have been a very different outcome. Yeah. So, so information's out there. The question is whether we're, we're rational enough to, to, to latch on to it. And she talks about that a lot. There are these powerful forces, what she calls super memes, that encourage us to believe things that aren't necessarily true. And often big incentives to, to – as we saw in the financial crisis, to stick with a version of reality that isn't always accurate. And, um, you know, we're going to have to wrestle with questions like, okay, what do we do if we've identified this four-year-old as a potential psychopath or preventing mass shootings? There was all this data about Stephen Paddock, but does that mean we want some particular official in the government tracking all this stuff, putting it together? Not so simple. Yeah, they're they're very disturbing privacy concerns raised by this. I would say, though, that... You can legitimately give up some of your privacy is things like getting a driver's license to drive on public roads, buying a gun. The fact that all these records exist on gun and ammunition purchases, but weren't really pulled together in a way that might have that should have. I mean, if somebody's buying that much ammunition at the last minute should trigger off a warning somewhere. I think even if you're a Second Amendment absolutist, I, I still think that that most people would agree, or many people would agree, that maybe there should be a mechanism. If it seems like something weird is going on, at least it gets checked out. She raised the question, what do you do? Well, you, you can't arrest somebody for something they haven't done yet, but many cases of terrorism and other terrible events have been run off the rails by simple intervention. Somebody just stops a car and asks somebody a question, or they short-circuit somebody's plans just by doing something that doesn't even restrict their freedom. Well, we're, we're doing this show in New York, 
And there's no question that predictive analytics have been used by the New York police force to reduce crime in the city. Yes, and th- yes. That was, that was one example. And it, and it has and, and, and engendered I, controversy and I, at times. And I suspect that there have been a number of acts of terror that have been prevented Many, by the use yes. of data and analytics. We right. don't actually know because a lot of that stuff is classified. But some, some cases have been released, and it's instructive. But let's end on something a little more upbeat. We mentioned predicting hurricanes and how that's gotten better. Better. I don't know if you saw this, but on the day that the Hurricane Irma was just approaching Puerto Rico, all these aviation buffs who track plane flights around noticed that all these passenger jets heading into the San Juan airport had turned around because the hurricane was coming. But there was one plane, a Delta flight out of New York, that was flying straight down there right into San Juan. The hurricane was already partway over the island. The outer band had already passed. The inner part of the hurricane was getting very close. There was this gap between the outer band and the inner band. The plane was flying right down this gap. They landed at the San Juan airport. They picked up all these people who were desperate to get off the island. They turned the plane around in 45 minutes. And then, zoom, they were back to New York, again, flying up this narrow space of open sky between the bands of the hurricane. And that was safe, right? And it wasn't like some daredevil thing. They knew they could do it safely because of the massive amount of data and our ability to analyze the data, which we didn't have even 10 years ago. So, you know, even while we're going to have to wrestle with big challenges, in many small ways, this revolution in data and prediction really is having an impact on life and, and, a, and a good one that I think in the coming decades, we're going to see this in health, business, the economy, a lot of different areas where this really does improve lives. Ah, we ended on a positive note. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> it's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davis. I'm Jim Meggs. And thanks for joining us. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. Uh, we are a production of Davies Content. Davies Content makes digital audio for companies and nonprofits. And I know that Jim knows the name of the website. How do we fix it? Dot me. No, it's DaviesContent.com. Oh. Okay, so obviously I don't. But the show is How Do We Fix It? Dot me. The company that makes this wonderful stuff is DaviesContent.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Thank you.